Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. Last time, we read the first half of Luke chapter 1 and learned about the prophetic words and encounters surrounding the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. I'd invite you to go back and catch up on that episode first if you haven't listened yet, because there's such rich background and context there that really informs what we'll be talking about today. It sets the stage for what's next. In today's episode, which is now the second Sunday of Advent, we'll cover the rest of Luke chapter 1. It's 41 verses of some pretty incredible scripture, which is definitely a lot to cover, but we can do this together. So let's get started in verse 39. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. All right, so as with any time we read scripture, let's resist the urge to instantly dig deep. Let's zoom out and assess what's happening here in the text. Mary has just had her encounter with the angel Gabriel, and so she hurries to see her cousin Elizabeth because Gabriel told her that Elizabeth is pregnant. Elizabeth and her unborn baby John, at the greeting of Mary, are both filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth encourages Mary through Holy Spirit-inspired words. So there's just a lot happening here in just a few verses. Let's start at the top. The text tells us that Mary hurries to see Elizabeth. This is a journey of about 80 to 100 miles for her from Nazareth to Judea, which is no small feat for a young woman, but she's probably full of questions and wonder, maybe even some fear. It makes sense that Mary is probably eager to not only see the miracle of her cousin's pregnancy to reassure herself of her own miracle, but also to just talk to someone else who would understand what it was like to be visited by God in a miraculous way, who wouldn't judge her or call her crazy or say it's a scandal, but who would connect with her and relate with her on what she was going through. I do wonder, though, did she travel alone? I don't think it was considered safe during those times for a young woman to travel by herself, and yet the text doesn't tell us any details about her journey. So I guess we'll just have to keep wondering about that. In any case, we can see that according to the text, before Mary even says one word, Elizabeth is informed by the Holy Spirit of what's going on. This for sure would be even more encouraging to Mary, to not have to convince or deeply explain, but to just be confirmed in what she knows to be true, but is still pretty shocking and hard to believe. The fact that Elizabeth already knows means all of this is really the real deal for Mary. 
My question here is, is Mary already pregnant with Jesus in this moment? While the text doesn't confirm it explicitly, it's my opinion that she is, for a couple of reasons. One, baby John is jumping for joy in Elizabeth's womb, which I think is reasonable to suggest that, even though the text says he responded to Mary's greeting, his actual joy is because of Jesus and not Mary, just based on who John is and will be in reference to Jesus. And two, Elizabeth says your child is blessed, not will be blessed, but is. While we know based on parts of scripture that Jesus has always existed as part of the Holy Trinity, Jesus has not always existed as a human child. So I think in this moment here, Mary is already pregnant and in the very beginning stages, but I'm not quite sure. Also, I just love the Holy Spirit-inspired confidence with which Elizabeth makes her proclamation here. She greets Mary with a cry of gladness, and she exclaims all these wonderful things over her. Elizabeth isn't trying to be quiet or stifle her joy. She isn't doubting what's coming over her and out of her mouth in this moment. I just think that's awesome. Elizabeth starts by saying that Mary and the unborn child of Jesus are both blessed, and then she ends by reminding Mary again that she is blessed. Blessed because she believed that the Lord would do what he said. How powerful is that? It is so powerful to be a blessing to others. In this case, Elizabeth and Mary are mutually blessing each other. But Mary receives this extra explanation that it is her belief that has blessed her. Not just God, not just the child she carries, but her own participation in her miracle has blessed her. Okay, let's get back to the text, picking up in verse 46. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord! How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior! For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. Again, let's zoom out and assess what's happening here. Mary has just heard prophetic encouragement from Elizabeth and responds with her own prophetic words. I mean, let's just take a moment and soak this in. It's extraordinary and wonderful. And honestly, this portion of scripture fills my heart and makes me cry when I read it. It's just really beautiful to me. I can just imagine how filled with wonder they both would be at all the things they've just said and prophesied at the filling of the Holy Spirit in them, which we need to remember that the Holy Spirit wasn't just available to God's people back then as he is to us today. 
Back then, it was very special. And to be women carrying this honor? I can just imagine how they felt and how they would carry this treasure of encountering the Spirit of God together in a way that arguably no one else in their whole history ever had. God's way of doing things is often unexpected and new. Mary's words here are referred to as the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin word for magnifies. She begins with herself, praising God and rejoicing for what he has done for her, how mindful he has been of his lowly servant girl. But then she expands, and here we begin to see more of God's nature and God's heart for his people. According to this prophetic word, he wants to show mercy to all who fear him. Fear in this case is meaning those who revere him and understand and respect that he is God, not fear as in actually being afraid of God. He wants to do tremendous things, scattering the proud and the haughty. He will uproot those who would believe that they are the ones who do tremendous things and not God. He puts those people in their place by doing only what God can do. Taking that even further, he brings down princes and exalts the humble, showing the upside-down nature of his kingdom in that humility is to be prized above status. He wants to fill the hungry with good things while sending the rich away empty-handed. This speaks to God's desire to take care of those in need, but also God's desire to connect with those who are hungry for him. Also, this doesn't necessarily mean that God despises wealth or wealthy people. Indeed, money can be an amazing blessing and tool in the kingdom when prioritized properly. But it does mean that wealth can be a trap we need to be careful of if it takes us away from God. As scripture tells us elsewhere, what good is it for man to gain the whole world if it costs him his soul? Continuing on with Mary's prophetic words, God again wants to help his people, and he shows mercy. Both of these things are mentioned here again because, indeed, where would any of us be without God's help and mercy at work in our lives? It is God's help and mercy that brings Jesus to earth, that connects with us and relates with us, and ultimately saves humanity. Lastly, God makes and keeps his promises. When God says something, he follows through without exception. This God, the God of Mary's proclamation, is quite simply a God worth serving and trusting. Mary stays with Elizabeth for three more months, presumably until John's actual birth, which is coming right up in the next part of this text. So let's pick back up in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? they exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, His name is John. Instantly, 
Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. All fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. All right, so zooming out and assessing what's happening here. Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, though again, he doesn't get that title until later on. And everyone in their circle rejoices. There's a bit of a kerfuffle about what his name should be, but Elizabeth and Zechariah insist to name the baby John based on the angel Gabriel's instructions. As soon as Zechariah confirms that the baby's name is John, the block on Zechariah's voice that Gabriel had placed on him is removed. Everyone in the crowd is filled with awe and the news starts to spread. Everyone who hears the news wonders, who is this baby going to be? All right, so now it's John the Baptist's time to come into the world and there is much rejoicing over God's mercy to Elizabeth. Because remember that during those times, barrenness was considered a curse because having children was key to a woman's survival and status. So the people would for sure see Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy and birth as a sign of God's mercy toward her. Tradition during those days also dictated that a child, especially a first son, be named after their father. I mean, while it's not as prevalent in our time today, we for sure still see that tradition quite a bit in modern times, in seniors and juniors and thirds and even fourths. People bestow family names on their children all the time to keep the lineage and family history going. In those days, it was unheard of to name a firstborn son by a name that wasn't a family name. So understandably, the people are shocked and confused that Elizabeth wants to name the baby John. And maybe they don't really trust her because she's the woman in this situation. Zechariah, to this point, is still unable to speak, but he writes down that, yes, the baby's name really is John. It is this moment, not the moment of John's birth, that gives Zechariah his voice back. It is Zechariah's obedience to the angel's complete set of instructions that confirms that Zechariah is no longer in a state of unbelief, but is all in to what God is doing in his life. And that all-in belief is what unlocks his voice again. I do wonder how Zechariah must have felt when John was finally born, after nine or ten months of being mute, and not having his voice back in that moment. I wonder if Zechariah was expecting to be able to speak and rejoice at the moment of the birth of his long-awaited son, to comfort and encourage and extol and connect with his wife, to even give God vocal praise in that incredibly important moment of his life, only to still be mute. I expect he was probably pretty disappointed, maybe even angry or sad or frustrated, and left wondering, even amidst this incredible miracle of his son, Am I forsaken? Will I ever have my voice again? It's a reminder for me that so many times it can be easy to overlook the incredible things God is doing in our lives, the things that we take for granted, because our eyes are fixed on our immediate needs and concerns and expectations that aren't fulfilled. 
But God is never not mindful of us, and God is never not intentional in what he's doing in our lives. We can take comfort that God does care, even in his correction, and that his discipline is a mark of his absolute love for us. Indeed, when Zechariah does get his voice back, he immediately uses it to praise God. It's my belief that Zechariah, in the midst of disappointment and suffering that was commingling with his joy, he was still learning to fully trust God, that if God was faithful to do this, give me a son, then God will be faithful to do that, give me back my voice. And I can wait on his perfect timing and still be obedient in that waiting. After such an extraordinary birth experience, Naturally, the people are in awe. I mean, I say naturally because it is natural for us to be in awe of God when he so clearly does something divine in our lives. We are built with the divine in mind, with the capacity to experience and desire not just blessings, but God himself. And so naturally, the people respond with appropriate awe and wonder and, just as naturally, The people talk about it. It is natural for us to not only desire the divine and be in awe of the divine, but to talk about the divine in our lives. In fact, scripture tells us in Revelation that it is the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony that overcomes the enemy of our souls. Our testimony of what God is doing in our lives is consequential in a way that's not only here and now, but also eternal. And so the people are talking about this amazing thing that has happened, and everyone is wondering who John is going to be, because it's clear to all that the Lord's hand is upon him. All right, moving to the last portion of this text, starting in verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sin in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. All right, one more time, let's zoom out and see what's happening here. Plain and simple, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and makes a prophetic speech about both Jesus and his son John. Let's zoom out and see what's happening here. Plain and simple, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and makes a prophetic speech about both Jesus and his son, John. So I feel like I've said this many times already, but wow, there's so much incredible scripture here to unpack. Just like with Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah starts by praising the Lord. 
In fact, Mary's Magnificat is so-called based on the Latin word for magnifies, and Zechariah's speech here is called the Benedictus because it's based on the Latin word for blessed, which is what Zechariah is doing in the first words of his speech. He's blessing God. I think it's important to note that when the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives, praise will be a fitting, frequent, and often a first response to who God is and what God is doing. The scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, and that truth includes that God is worthy of our praise. Then Zechariah gets into why God is worthy of praise. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior, just as he promised. Boom! Yes! God could literally do nothing else, and this would be more than enough to be worthy of our praise for all eternity. Because the only way we even have the possibility of eternity is because of the Savior Jesus. Let's look closer at the words visited and redeemed here. I like to use the resource Blue Letter Bible, which is a free app or website, to dig deeper into the meaning of specific words in scripture. I do this because we have to remember that these words were originally captured in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. If you've ever played the childhood game of telephone, then you know that often things get lost in translation. So doing word studies is a great way to enhance your time in scripture and to help find those treasures that might have been lost for the sake of making scripture available to us in a language that we can understand. All right, so Blue Letter Bible tells me that visited is originally the Greek word episkeptomai. Episkeptomai. I think that's how you say it. (laughs) It's used 11 times in the whole Bible. And the meaning of this word includes to look upon or after, to inspect, examine with the eyes, to see how one is, to visit, to see the poor and afflicted and the sick, to look upon in order to help or to benefit, to look after, have care for, provide for. Then, looking at redeemed, it is actually a little more correct to the original language to say here that God accomplished redemption for his people, which is a subtle nuance, but all the same, I think it adds just a little more here for us to understand. There are two Greek words at play here, poieo, meaning to make or to do, and litrosis, a ransoming, a redemption, deliverance especially from the penalty of sin. So if we put these two words together, God visits and redeems his people. He sets his eyes on us, looks after us, takes care of us in order to help us and benefit us, provides for us. And he does this so that he can accomplish our deliverance from the penalty of sin, the wages of which are death. This is just absolutely incredible and something we should never take for granted or stop praising God for. Also, note again that Zechariah confirms that this Savior sent to us in the form of Jesus is from the line of David, and that this promised and prophesied king is now here. Zechariah, with the Holy Spirit's inspiration, says that now we will be saved from our enemies and all who hate us. While this definitely meant their human enemies, the bigger picture context of this means our supernatural enemies too. Sin, death, the devil and his demons. 
And Zechariah says we've been saved from these enemies so that we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness, for as long as we live. Note that in this case, fear means actual fear. There's the good kind of fear when it comes to God, awe and reverence and wonder. And then there's the fear we are so familiar with, fear of danger, of oppression, of not being understood, of being cast out. Zechariah is saying here that we will be free to love God the way we were made to do. But we know from experience that this doesn't necessarily mean that the reasons for that fear will be gone. We know even now that people across the world are persecuted for their faith. But this prophecy from Zechariah assures us that even in the face of circumstances that might warrant that real fear, we don't have to partner with that fear as we love and serve God. Zechariah again mentions the mercy of God, echoing Mary, and says that God's mercy is directly connected to God's remembrance of the covenant he made with his people. There is so much to say here about this covenant. In fact, I may do a whole episode just on this topic because it's so rich and inviting, and it's the basis for our entire relationship with God and God's people. I know firsthand how the presence of God's covenant love changes everything. And in fact, I wrote a whole book about it. This may be a shameless plug, but I truly believe the message of that book is life-changing. If you want to know more, you can check out my book called Covenant Life, Living Fully in God's Love, which is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through Amazon. Okay, Zechariah switches gears then to prophesying about his own son, John, calling him a prophet of the Most High, who will prepare the way for the Lord. Who will tell his people how to find salvation through the forgiveness of sins? Honestly, Jesus commissioned the early church and each of us today to do the same thing. Not in the way or timing that John did, of course, but the heart of what John was called to do is something we are called to do as well. Preach the gospel. The gospel is called the good news because it is good news. It is the best news, in fact, in the face of very bad, grave news. The bad news is that our sinful nature means we should never be able to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God. The bad news is that there is an enemy of our souls who wants nothing more than to stick it to God by sticking it to us. But there is good news, and that is because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and we have right relationship with God for all eternity. Because of Jesus, the enemy can't touch us in a way that is lasting and permanent. And that is the news, both bad and good, that we are called to share while we are on this earth, just as John was so called. Speaking of John, Luke ends this chapter with one more verse. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. These two sentences in this one verse cause me to ask some questions that I'm not sure we'll have answers to on this side of heaven. Based on John chapter 1, we can assume with some certainty that John doesn't even know who Jesus is until after he starts his ministry, even though John met Jesus while in the womb. And I wonder, why weren't they friends growing up? I wonder why they didn't at least spend some time together, 
knowing how intricately linked their lives and stories are and would be. And why? Why did John have to live in the wilderness? Was it his choice, or was he compelled, like Jesus at the start of his ministry, to go there? Could John have not been who he was created to be without the majority of his young years, the prime of his life, being spent in the wilderness? It feels unfair and a bit of a raw deal, if I'm honest. Then again, God does a whole, whole lot in the wildernesses of our lives. Even though we almost always wish we didn't have to go through them, they very often are so critical to the growth of our faith. In the end, our trust and belief and purpose in the Lord is more important than our comfort. It makes me both thankful and humbled that the wilderness experience is one we can only have on this side of eternity. I have another question too. I wonder what John was really like as a child and as an adult. I've read before in commentaries, and many portrayals of him in modern depictions go along with this, that he was eccentric, considered radical and out there, and just weird. Certainly, the few scriptures about his personality can lend to this idea, but I wonder if that was truly his personality. And if it was, was it because he lived most of his life in the wilderness? Or, Did he live in the wilderness because he was radical and eccentric? Ultimately, I bring this up because so often we put people on pedestals who give us something to aspire to be like. There tends to be a certain look and feel and vibe to the people we admire societally. But God seems to suggest, even just in this one chapter of scripture, that God isn't concerned with the appearances, the oddities, or the expectations the world has. Jesus later comes to say about John in Matthew chapter 11 that he is greater than any person who has ever lived until now. I mean, that's some crazy high praise. Jesus clearly sees past what the world counts out. But he then continues on in that same passage to say this, But now anyone who belongs in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Even the least important of them is greater than he is. So I guess here's my point. If you've ever felt like the outcast, like you're weird or misunderstood, like you don't belong, like you don't have much to offer anyone, well, I happen to think that God is pretty fond of misfits. He will always have a place for you in his heart and his story. Don't count yourself out because you and all the things that make you, you, matter to God. Okay, let's get into some fun commentary facts. In verse 63, we are told that Zechariah uses a writing tablet to communicate with the people, since he still can't speak. A writing tablet in those days was a wood tablet covered with wax, which I thought was pretty neat. Also, in verse 69, an alternate rendering of sent us our mighty Savior, is raised up a horn of salvation. This phrase is referencing the horn of an ox, which was seen during those times as a symbol of power because animals used their horns for battle. All right, we're getting to the end of the episode here, and you may have noticed that I didn't actually talk about the last part of Zechariah's prophetic speech in verses 78 and 79. 
which are some pretty important verses. But don't worry, I didn't forget about them. I saved them for right now. Because remember that this is partially, at least, an Advent series. And the theme for today, the second Sunday of Advent, is peace. We see in these two verses that indeed, peace is present. Zechariah talks again of God's tender mercy, saying that it's God's mercy that brings us the morning light from heaven, that God is going to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and he's going to guide us to the path of peace. And he's going to do all this through Jesus. This is one of my favorite promises in all of scripture, because I don't know anyone alive who isn't in need of a shining light in our dark and dead places. I don't know anyone who couldn't use some help finding the path of peace. If that's you today, then I pray this promise encourages you and that you are filled with peace that passes all understanding, the peace that comes through our Jesus. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, we finally made it to the end of Luke chapter 1. 80 verses packed with meaning and events that have shaped and continue to shape the entire history of the world. I can't help but be in total awe of God after all he's done in this one chapter. All the moving pieces and parts and people that God involved when he could have just poof, put Jesus here on this earth as an adult, as a king, as an authority figure with full power and might. But no, God chose to move in this bewildering, humble, miraculous way. And while we haven't yet come to the birth of Jesus, that's coming next, we already have so much context and connection between God's heart and his people in this first chapter of Luke. It's one of the things about God that makes me love him so, so much. He doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't have to involve himself. He doesn't have to involve us. But he does. And yes, it's hard, and sometimes it hurts, and often it's scary for us in our limited ability to understand what or how or why. But even in the midst of all that, we find ourselves deeply, personally, intimately connected with a God, the God, the only God, because of what he did by coming down to us in the person of Jesus. And as we'll see, this is only just the beginning. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.